Welcome to Future Shift, where we understand the world better by discussing changing and emerging industries. I'm Jacob Pratt, and today we're talking about education, Paraguay, and the perks of rebellion. In the previous episode, speaking to Dennis and Lewis, I set up that this week would be a selection of teaching stories, a light-hearted affair looking at the funny things happening in education. So I got in touch with Margaret Hebblethwaite, writer, teacher and founder of an educational charity in rural Paraguay called the Santa Maria Education Fund. I had been over to Santa Maria after university to teach English as a volunteer and currently volunteer as treasurer and trustee for the charity, while Margaret does a whole heap more than that. I sent a quick email as the June heat made me forget all forms of courtesy, asking for a few interesting stories from her time over there. She said she would listen to the previous podcast and come back with some stories that would fit the bill. But speaking to Margaret, there was no chance that her experience could be cut down to such a format. We covered what she thought education was based on her unique background, how she founded the charity and what it does, why being a rebel is severely underrated and why you should eventually buy her book. But we started by speaking about what had led Margaret to be living predominantly in Paraguay today. Well, isn't it interesting the different strands that move together to form a life? I, um, I, when I was a, a young mother, you know, with babies, young children at home, I started writing. So that was the continuation of my own education, which was in theology. I began writing theology, and then I went on writing theology as I had the three children and they sort of grew up a bit. Eventually I got a a job working on a Catholic paper, The Tablet. And it was while she was acting as editor and writer at The Tablet in 1994 that Margaret's husband died. Understandably devastated, she was left with a tough choice to make on how she approached the rest of her life. So I was a relatively young widow, and I thought, let's have a positive widowhood. And we had actually, as you know, as a couple, we'd lived in Rome for a couple of years. I'd realised what an immensely broadening experience it is to live abroad. And I'd also, over the years, I'd got very much into option for the poor, liberation theology, You know, I couldn't kind of put that into practice in a personal way because I was still at home looking after young children. You know, when I made my first trips to Latin America, they were still quite young. So as they grew a bit older and then my husband died, and having had this experience living abroad, I thought I must grab the moment because (laughs) if you're going to get married and have children, you have very few, very short, narrow windows for going to live abroad. So there I was. I hadn't yet got grandchildren, which would be one impediment to going abroad. And my parents were not yet completely old and doddery, which would be another impediment. So I said, I must go quickly. And my youngest child was mid-teens. And I couldn't interest him in going to live in a poor community in Latin America. As soon as he was 18, I left home and I left him with the house and the car. And what 18-year-old would not relish that? 
So, after becoming a young widow, Margaret had decided to broaden her life instead of narrowing it, and moved abroad as soon as she could. The destination? South America and Paraguay. Once rich and prosperous, Paraguay was devastated by the War of the Triple Alliance in the 1860s, surrounded and decimated by Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay. The result was the loss of over half of their population, economic turmoil lasting decades, and a series of military dictatorships leading up to 1989. Today, however, it is mostly known for the easygoing way of living and surprisingly good football team. If you remember the free-kick-taking goalkeeper from the 90s, Jose Luis Chilavert, he was Paraguayan. But Margaret had not come here to practice her dead ball expertise. She was interested in the Jesuits, a Christian group of people who educated and protected the local indigenous people from Spanish exploitation. They arrived in 1607 and were totally expelled from Paraguay 150 years later in the tragic circumstances told in the film The Mission. This resulted in the complete collapse of the reductions, but their culture and the ruins of their settlements live on proudly today. These ruins are close to Santa Maria, a small village in Paraguay, where Margaret ended up speaking to one of the remaining Jesuits in the region. Very shortly after I arrived in Santa Maria, a Jesuit priest began an education project at tertiary level for the poor. And I thought that was very exciting, people's university as it were. Mm -hmm. And then some friends, various friends from, from Britain gave me just small amounts of money, you know, but to use as I saw fit in this poor community. So the way I saw fit was to help this new tertiary education project. So it began with just a little help and then that grew. And then another thing going on at the same time was a friend of mine who her family couldn't afford to send her to university. But her mum went and talked to the bishop and the bishop got her a scholarship, quote unquote, at the <laughs> Catholic <laughs> University. So that was very exciting. Then it turned out, it, you know, it didn't cover very much. It was called mm. what they call a half scholarship, which in Paraguay meant quite a lot less than half. So this meant this girl, she couldn't use this exciting scholarship unless someone was going to pay the rest of it. So that opened my eyes to the fact that there was a problem there. And I then went and I talked to the, the director of the Catholic University and I said, you know, I have a little money, not a lot that people have given. Maybe I could, you know, support a student or two from Santa Maria who mm. cannot continue because they haven't got enough money by the fees. So they then gave me a little list. So that's how I started the first year with um, ones who were on that list and who were the best of the ones on that list. But after that, mm. I realized I really ought to be deciding beforehand who goes rather than just subsidizing the ones who have been foolish enough to jump in without the funds. And, to, you know, <laughs> and to, I have no knowledge of whether they're the best people to support or not. So very early on, we started our, our own selection process. So, with the serendipity of meeting a Jesuit priest focused on education and the supportive friends from the UK, Margaret had the beginnings of the charity. Its aim? To support children who wanted to go to university 
and had the talent but did not have the funds. But this wasn't the first time Margaret had been involved in teaching in Paraguay. She had been asked before she had even reached Santa Maria. What happened in Paraguay is that people ask you to teach English. And I had had absolutely no interest in teaching English. In fact, I had rather despised my university contemporaries who, having finished their degree, then did a, a course in teaching English as a foreign language. I thought that was very boring. But that <laughs> I soon found out I was wrong because when I started to teach English as a foreign language, I found I loved it. Inspired to teach her native English, she gave it a go on the best learners of all, children. But her experience having taught seminars to adults meant that it wasn't smooth sailing. Hmm. I remember my first attempts at teaching children were fairly disastrous because I was teaching them in the way I would teach adults. And I was thinking, these children, they are they're hopeless students because I explain <laughs> a point of grammar and they don't get it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only kind of later on, in fact, very much through the influence of, of the Cambridge exams, that enabled me to realise children learn in a different way and actually they are very brilliant at learning languages, which we all know. Yeah. So you've got the English teaching coming because people were asking me for it. You've got the education funding starting because I was working in a poor area and needed to use funds that people gave me and then that I began to ask for myself very actively and then that eventually became a charity. So the charity that would be named the Santa Maria Education Fund provided in-demand English lessons and scholarships to university to those who couldn't afford it but had the talent. It also provided classes de biblia or bible class for locals taught by Margaret herself. One of the reasons for this high demand for English classes is the relatively poor education system in Paraguay, due to several factors, of which we'll only cover a few here. English is a valuable skill that is taught in schools, but as the two national languages are Spanish and the indigenous Guarani, English often does not take priority. But I wanted to understand Margaret's views on education based on her less traditional entrance to the area. To do this, we need to understand a little about how Paraguay's history has affected education there and the influence of the dictatorship. Paraguay had a very long dictatorship under President Stroessner, which finished in 1989, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. 35 years, I think. That had led to... You couldn't get a state job unless you were a supporter of him and his political party. So that had led to a very long period of education for the regime, which basically was teaching people not to think. That perhaps was the principal aim in a dictatorship, not to question things. So learning by rote taking what the books say and what your teachers say as Bible truth and a high value for for tests because unless you pass your end of year exams you're not going to go up. So that's the background mm. of Paraguayan education and that has persisted really. Strict adherence to the party. In the UK we take for granted the perks of democracy even though it might not feel like it at times 
but people's way of thinking in Paraguay is still affected by the regime. So what happens when people would disagree with what they were taught? Would they speak up? No one's really been taught that it's a good thing to disagree with your teachers. That idea hasn't quite caught on yet in Paraguay. (laughs) Mind you, even in the UK, I remember moments in my own educational history when I'd been terribly pleased with an extensive piece of work I'd done in which I had come to a different conclusion from my teacher. And I was very disappointed to find that they were offended by this. And I noticed this from the beginning in Paraguay. There were two rebellious girls in the first year that the Institute got going and the other teachers didn't like them. And I loved them, you know, because they were rebels. I saw this as great potential. (laughs) So Margaret, who had never been one for being told what she could and couldn't do, saw this originality as the sign of a great student. A rebellious streak was something to celebrate, not something to be pushed down and repressed. But not everyone in Santa Maria thought that way, especially when it came to rebellion in less educational circumstances. Because I was a funder of the Institute as well as a teacher, I was going along with with the Institute director and a carpenter. We were going in to see about some carpentry works. So we went in after the end of classes one day, unlocked the front door, opened it, and saw this completely naked woman dash across and into a classroom. (laughs) And the the door was opened by a completely naked man. (laughs) (laughs) Quick as a flash. It was too fast for us to see the faces of either. So the director and I and the carpenter we all pretended <laughs> to each other <laughs> that we hadn't seen this. <laughs> <laughs> Went on talking about carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever find out who they were? Absolutely. Or? So then, after the carpenter had gone, I said to the director, "Do you know who that was?" And she said. I recognise him from the sandals that I can see on the floor down here in the reception room. It's my nephew. (laughs) (laughs) And her nephew was, he lived in another town, but he was living in Santa Maria in her house. So obviously he couldn't have these rendezvous with his girlfriend in the house of the director of the institute. So the conclusion was that the girl was his girlfriend. (laughs) Right. Well, the next day when I saw the director, she told me what a right rollicking she had given (laughs) to that young man. She told me how she had told him, this is not love. This is (laughs) lust. And I saw him the next day in my class my Bible class, and he was looking so down, complete hand-on expression. He had absolutely been trampled over. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt I must be kind to him. And I knew that um, I was in the middle of organising a trip 
this was a, a, a trip further afield. It was to the ruins, the famous Paraguayan ruins, which are Jesuit ruins of the old mission period. And it was going quite a long way away mm. to Trinidad and Jesus and San Cosme. He had done this trip the previous year, absolutely adored it. He wasn't eligible to go on it this year because we had a vehicle was just enough for the number of students. But he'd asked several times, you know, if he could go on it again. So at the end of our Bible class, I called him up to me and he thought he was going get, to gonna get another right rollicking from me, poor fellow. But I said, <laughs> instead of that, I, um, I said, we have just one spare place in our vehicle. So if you're still keen, you can come. However, I said, because I didn't want to undermine the director, I said, I think you should understand that I agree with the director. <laughs> so I sort of simultaneously was kind to him <laughs> in a way that <laughs> I hoped was not undermining all authority. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like it's always good cop, bad cop. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, exactly. I had found it comforting to know that no matter where you go in the world, teenagers will do hilarious things to avoid their family at personal moments, whether they're wearing sandals or not. But I had a question for Margaret. What did two students running naked out of a classroom have to do with her view on education? But it does kind of link in, not only with my own rebellious nature, but in a way to what I think makes a good teacher. At least as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, you know, I'm sure there'll be lots of teachers out there who heavily disagree with me. But my husband, who was, he was a very good teacher himself, he used to say, and he didn't invent this, he quoted it from someone and he, he told me so many times, and I have forgotten who is he's quoting. <laughs> so if anyone knows, let me know. But somebody said, someone famous said, there are only two things needed to be a good teacher, love your subject and love your pupils. And I suppose I saw what I was doing as a form of loving, loving that student, you know, <laughs> befriending him as well, of course, as taking the whole group off on this exciting trip. Yeah. Yeah. Love your subject and love your students. A simple piece of advice for new teachers everywhere. We both then reminisced slightly about teaching in Paraguay, the times where a slight rain meant no one came to class and the chalkboard exercises and drawings prepared were for naught. At that point, we were interrupted. Sorry, we've got a phone in the background. Now, this will be a scam call. Hold on a minute. Hello? Scam. That was a scam, yeah, usual form. Begin. <laughs> Hello, this is British Telecom. I personally haven't picked up a landline since 2010, so couldn't comment. But we quickly got back onto the topic of education. If teachers needed to care about their subject and their students to be successful, what actually are they trying to teach? Was it about English grammar, strength of character? Personal values? <clears throat> it's quite an interesting question because, of course, I think it's terribly important to impart values. But I don't know to what extent you impart values by 
teaching the values rather than by exemplifying them. I think maybe some people are better at doing this than me, but I always fight a bit shy of telling people what their values ought to be. It implies that you have higher values than that they do. I think that quite annoys me about the older generation. You know, I've heard this in, in Christian community meetings, you know, complaints about the younger generation, and then they go on about the vices of the younger generation, and I want to say, yeah, but the you know, younger generation, they've got tremendous values, which, which we've lost because we've become blasé, and, you know, we don't fight for social justice in the way that the young do. I mean, it would be lovely to think that the effect of my teaching was to impart values. But I think that's for my students to say rather than for me. So Margaret believed that you demonstrate values through everyday actions, that you role model them, you don't teach them, fits with the naked nephew story. So what is the core of what you're teaching? What are you really trying to impart when you're stood in front of a class day in and day out? What I think I can teach them, and I hope I do teach them, is how to think. And I know maybe that comes from the fact that I studied philosophy as well as theology. I think you learn to think through having knowledge imparted, but then using it. I'm a great believer in essays. This is curious. The best, the best history teacher I ever had at school was one who rigorously prepared us for the O-level, as it was called in those days. Mm -hmm. And she did, us by make, she did it by making us write an essay every week. And writing an essay is quite hard work, particularly if you don't do it very often. If you have to do it every week, it soon becomes a hell of a lot easier. And so that broke down our sort of fear of essays, our kind of tongue-tiedness, and it enabled us... She would dictate. She'd spend her lesson actually dictating notes which you'd think would be a terrible way of teaching, but she would dictate <laughs> these notes. And then we would have to write an essay for our homework using the information that was in the notes. And actually, that was a very effective way of teaching because it, yeah, it taught us to use the information, shape that information to answer the question. So learning and then using that information teaches you how to think. But my thinking went to the impracticalities of getting students nowadays to sit down close all other more addictive distractions and write an essay a week in the UK or Paraguay. With gaming, YouTube, TikTok, WhatsApp, notification after notification popping up on phones, what was going to drive them to do this over anything else? Because the Cambridge exams demand it. As we prepare our students for these exams, we teach them to write essays. And this is something that they've probably never done at any level of their education, including at university. So one reason is pretty simple. They have to. The Cambridge exams are worldwide exams testing English across four categories, reading, listening, speaking, and writing. But these essays are not just bound to English teaching. For the university scholarships that the charity provides, Margaret uses essays to judge talent using questions such as... Do you think tradition or modernity is more desirable? And... What do you like or what do you not like about your country? But why does she use these essays? We find that that is the best way to evaluate potential. I guess because there's so much freedom 
As in, you, I mean, there's that prompt, but you can kind of go in any direction with it that you want. There's so much freedom, yeah. So, the freedom allowed in an essay, hated by some and relished by others, proved a good test for students. Those who could organise their thoughts, write good English and lead the reader to the conclusions provided would prosper further down the line. But we moved on to questions of exams in Paraguay, where they were actually liked by students and how students fudging their way to success shouldn't be looked down on, because we've all been there. And I found that throughout our English teaching, the students really value tests. It's not just that it enables you to go up, but they feel it it gives them a measure of their own progress. And they like that. And I Mm. think we all do. You know, it's quite fashionable to say you're anti-exam based teaching. But I think that there are values in exam based teaching. So you need both. You need the kind of individuality and originality and initiative to be fostered, but you also need your measure of progress. And also, let's face it, you know, some of us have done courses because we wanted the qualification at the end. And some of us have looked for the easiest, quickest possible way of getting that qualification, (laughs) doing the minimum amount of work. I don't know what you're on about, (laughs) Margaret. I don't don't know. (laughs) So to then despise that among our students is very hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's a bit of ingenuity in knowing what you want and kind of taking the best route to get to that. Yes. Yeah, and and preparing yourself for an exam is an amazing way of pulling all your skill and knowledge together. There's a kind of wonderful mm-hmm. moment, you know, on the day of the exam when you've got all this short-term knowledge crammed into your head and you know it all, and it, <laughs> yeah. and it's in your short-term memory because you you know, and by the day after or the two or three days after, you've forgotten an awful lot of stuff, and you have this kind of sense if only. I could capture all that knowledge and not lose it. How wonderful it would be. (laughs) So I'm not against exams. As long as you have, have, you know, the originality and initiative valued as well and built into the system. Margaret had said that exams were the ultimate form of feedback for students, providing a numerical value to show their progress in the subject. And this need for progress and growth is seen everywhere. Kids measuring their height on the wall with a pen, someone at the gym seeing their one rep max increase month on month. There are even apps that use this to make everyday life as motivating as possible, providing points for washing the dishes and going to sleep on time. This is expanded and defined more broadly as gamification, using feedback and other techniques to stimulate core human drives and form habits or even more broadly as psychology, which I'm not going to try and cover in this segue. Instead, we shift back to Paraguay, and the reason Margaret still lives predominantly there, the Santa Maria Education Fund, influenced by a Jesuit priest, but founded by Margaret. And she discussed how the corruption that is rife across Paraguay has meant that the support provided is necessarily hemmed into Santa Maria. So we're both trustees for and you founded the Santa Maria Education Fund. So what what kind of work is that doing kind of today 
in order to help out, if not the whole country of Paraguay, at least kind of Santa Maria? Yeah, well, it's called the Santa Maria Education Fund. We are allowed to help people who are not in Santa Maria, but who are still Paraguayan. But in practice, that's rare because to administer the funds well, we need to see what's going on. It's a country with a lot of corruption. Uh, corruption is the word you use when someone else is doing it. And when you do it yourself, it's called helping your friends. And so helping your friends is a value. Corruption is a terrible thing, but you have this double thing going on through the culture. So we are very confident that our funds are being well and justly administered because we keep very close tabs on what's going on. I mean, we don't actually have enough money to, to um, expand it much anyway. But even if we had the money, it would be very difficult to do. So the smaller scale reduces the risk of corruption for the charity in Paraguay, as money passes through a small number of trusted hands. And what does the charity do present day to help the residents of Santa Maria? Margaret explains the four main strands. The Institute, Scholarships to University, English Classes and music classes. First up, the Institute and their highly employable food technology courses. So what works are we doing? Well, we run the Institute and the Institute teaches food technology, which is, it's not a university course. It's a two year course, but it is very good at getting people jobs and jobs not in the capital city. So it avoids this kind of rush to the capital which you get in developing countries because the food factories are out in the countryside generally. So it equips people to go and work there, maybe in their laboratory. You know, anyone, any company producing food has a laboratory. This wasn't my idea. I no knowledge or prior interest in food technology. This was all set up by the, the teachers of the Institute, but it was a very fortunate decision. Second, university scholarships. Then we give scholarships to university. Most of those universities are in the neighbouring town, as the, there are no universities inside Santa Maria as such. But some of them are further afield. And that's where we have this um, exam where you write an essay. <laughs> so... We run the Institute of the Food Technology course. We give university scholarships to select few. Third. English classes, which are completely open to everyone at the level of children, which is under 13. And from 13 upwards, we do have a selection process because we find if, if you don't have that, you can't advance really very much because you you know, the, the weaker students hold back the more talented ones. So at that level, what we're interested in, in is enabling people who have the potential to actually develop the kind of English that can be used, you know, to converse with native speakers, to go abroad, to answer emails to the hotel in English and so on, mm. to actually use it. So English classes for all children and students over 13 who will use their English for work or travel. And the final strand. And then the fourth bit of our regular spending is on music classes. And Santa Maria is a um, town with a very great musical heritage. It was a, an old Jesuit mission where music was very, very important. 
And so our music classes are not just folk guitar with Paraguayan folk music, although we absolutely love Paraguayan folk music. (laughs) But they are also geared towards playing the classical music that was played in the old Jesuit mission and harp and we have violin lessons and Mm -hmm. they have they are you know proper classically trained teachers Mm. and the Paraguayan harp is a beautiful instrument it is beautiful yeah it's beautiful it has a wooden frame and that somehow gives a different tone to it than the, the metal frames of the classical European harp. So the Santa Maria Education Fund does four things. One, it runs the Food Technology Institute, upskilling locals for local jobs. Two, it provides scholarships for students to attend university if they could not afford it otherwise. Three, it provides English classes to all children under 13 and develops English for older students who will make use of it. And four, provides music lessons for the violin and Paraguayan harp. Margaret and myself both volunteered to keep the charity going along with three other trustees, Mimi's continued support, and Sarah and Emmy in Santa Maria. And details for donations can be found at the end of the podcast. To finish, I asked Margaret the same question I asked Dennis and Lewis in the last episode, to help the next generation. What advice would you give to new teachers coming into education, either in, well, let's start with the UK, I guess, if that's probably easier. Love your subject, love your students, and that's about it. If you don't love your students, they will sense it. I think the unpopular teachers at schools, are they're always the ones who don't love their students. The ones who complain about their pupils, you can be pretty sure their pupils won't like them either. Mm. So, you know, you have to value people. One of our students in Santa Maria of English, he's a very bright boy, but he had a really mucked up childhood, poor fellow. He was a difficult pupil in the class. I remember one teacher saying that in the middle of the English class, he sort of, he went off and he climbed a tree. Hmm. It's classic attention-seeking. But this teacher also said, or it might have been another teacher, but talking about the same pupil, he said after the class he would walk back home. He, You know, they'd walk together and he would talk to him. And that way they formed a relationship and then he became a much easier pupil in the classroom. Hmm. And that's just... It's so important, you know, to love your students. It really, really is. But then Mm. if you don't love your subjects, you're not going to be able to convey enthusiasm for your subject. It's it's only those two rules. Love your subjects and love your pupils. And everything else should kind of follow on from that. Yeah, that's lovely. And finally... I realised I was speaking to the person who had written The Travel Guide to Paraguay. Published by Bratt, the book has 4.6 out of 5 stars on Amazon and provides travel guidance, logistical information and historical facts to accompany your trip to Paraguay. So I asked Margaret for some advice for those who want to venture out to Paraguay. With hindsight, she had a predictable response. Well, um, I would advise them to buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) I really would advise them to buy my book. I really, really would. 
<laughs> we sometimes have volunteers who come to teach us English who have not bought my book. And they need to buy my book. Yeah. Which is <laughs> is in its third edition now. Margaret also did provide a lengthier rundown of sites and what to expect in Paraguay that we don't have time for here. But let me know if that would be of interest for a future, future short. Over the last two episodes, we've explored what education is through three people. Margaret has talked about teaching children to think through love, care and the necessary exams. Lewis, a younger UK teacher, talked about healthy habits and just giving it a go. And Dennis, raised in New Zealand but teacher in the UK, focused on helping children to understand the world around them. Education is about the brain, the body, and the world around us. And that barely even scratches the surface. In the next Future Shift episode, we will be looking forward on the theme of education, looking at whether gaming can be considered as skills development, and discussing other ways of learning beyond traditional school practices. Thanks for listening and making it through the sometimes echoey production. My setup skills still have a way to go. I will take lessons from any teachers out there, exam-based teaching only. Now we'll quickly provide some information on the charity founded by Margaret. Donating to charity is an incredibly personal decision and there are so many fantastic charities out there that are worth your time. If the Santa Maria Education Fund sounds like one of them, you can visit santamariadefe.org for more information. The website ran voluntarily by one of the trustees, Kate. You can set your Amazon Smile charity to be Santa Maria Education Fund so that every purchase on Amazon contributes to the charity. Or you can donate by emailing info at santamariadefe.org or visiting cafonline.org and entering Santa Maria Education Fund. All the links will be on the website at jproduct.co.uk forward slash future shift. You can keep up to date with additional visual content on Instagram at future underscore shift or find me any other way you know how. Thanks to Margaret for joining. Thanks to Tom Bell for the intro jingle. And thanks to you for listening. Speak to you soon. Bye.